Hello, my name is Adam. I am a pastor in Lincoln from Redeemer Press. It's great to be with y'all. I've been here a couple of times before. You have a beautiful building, by the way. I'm a little jealous, maybe even sinful a little bit. So a little bit of background. So I am, I grew up in Chicago, so you'll pick up the accent after a while. I'm not, I have a little different, different accent going on. I also, like I have five kids. They're all out of the house. I just became an empty nester about two months ago. It's, a, it's good and bad. I really like my kids. Maybe they're happy to be out. Who knows? And also, I'm going to be planning a church here in next fall. So, I, so starting in January, I'm free to go do all sorts of crazy things and raise money and do that stuff. So that's a little bit about my background. Love being with you guys. So I picked a passage today that you may think, what does this have to do with Advent? I'm going to tell you why. For, I do a, I've been a youth pastor for now, I think, 30-some years, whatever it is. It's fabulous. Love it. It's been great. Most of my youth group are non-believers, people who don't know Jesus. So it's been fun interacting with them. But one thing I recognize is oftentimes at Christmas, we often forget what the whole point is. We forget the whole point of why Jesus even came, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about why he came, like in what his whole purpose was. And, and so this is where we're going to start. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read John 12, 20 through 26. Dear Lord, we thank you so much to be here. We thank you so much for the fact that you love these people. And, and I pray, I do pray for them. As they're searching for the next guy, if they're searching for who you're going to bring here to be the next step here, that you will make that super clear to them, Lord. And I, I pray today as I bring your word to you that you will get me out of the way, even my accent and my speech, that you will make it as clear as it can be, like an angel speaking, so that they don't have to decipher what I'm saying. In your name we pray. Amen. And I say that because one of my kids literally walked down after I preached one day at Redeemer, and she goes, this is fabulous. I understood 85% of what you said. Wasn't offended because last time I think it was 50. But So just a little bit of background. So let's think about I work with a lot of people, and what you notice now in the world today is that most people are bored with their Christianity, or they don't see the purpose of it, or they're not really, it's just sort of something they do, and they're not really into God. They sort of become, they sort of walk away, and they're sort of wrestling with that. And it's interesting, because one of the reasons they do that is because we have this mindset now that God is good if, and fill in the blank, whatever that is. God is good only if, A, he does whatever. God is good if my mother doesn't die of cancer. God is good if I can find a spouse. God is good if I get a better job. Whatever that be, we're always, in some senses, judging God by how we feel like he's treating us, as opposed to what the scripture actually says. And so today I just want to encourage you to think about the only way we're really going to experience God the way our souls really want is that literally we experience God in the way that we learn and understand and we believe and follow what he has given to us in scripture. Like, that's how we're going to come to our uh, understanding of who God is. We don't get to make God up. But yet, in some senses, we all do it a little bit, right? I mean, we sort of get frustrated with God when things aren't quite right. Maybe you're frustrated that Kyle left, and you're like, God, what are you doing? Why would you, why would you put us in this place? But the reality is, God never promises us ease. He never promises us a great life. He promises us joy. He promises us forgiveness. So when we think about this, just a quick background before I read this passage. This is right after the triumphal entry. So like God is, Jesus has just rode into town. He's on a donkey. People are waving palm branches. Huge celebration. Jerusalem is, I think they were saying roughly 100, 150,000 normally. At this point, it's 250 to 300. I mean, it's swell because of the Passover. There's tons of people there. They're super excited. Jesus is riding in on a donkey. They're super excited. They're, they think he has come for what purpose? Right? They're all excited because he has come to overthrow the Rome. But let's read this, and then I'll tell you what God actually came to do. This is, this is in verse 20 through 26. 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So the, these came to Philippi, Philip, sorry, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, who, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So when you think about that just for a second, Jesus has just rode on the triumphal entry. They are thinking he has come, what, to overthrow Rome, right? They think he has come to set the world right, put the Jews in power, God's people, and get rid of the Romans. But Jesus actually came for their real problem, which is their own sin. Just like in our lives, our biggest problem is us. It's not the government. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids, good or bad. It's not your job. It's not whatever else. The problem is us. And the sin that's within us is our biggest issue. It is the thing that causes all the pain in this world is our sin. I mean, you think about that for a second. The world is a terrible place because of us. And so the reality is Jesus is coming to set that right. And what's amazing is, in verse 20, they're all worshiping at this feast and some Greeks. Now, to understand what the point is, so prophecy is starting to come true because the Greeks have now heard about Jesus and the word even to know God, they actually want to like know him as their savior. Like the idea is, they're not just here to interview him like in some newspaper. They, like, they want to know him. But if you know anything about the temple, if Jesus is inside preaching in the temple, Greeks can only go so far. You know, that some Jews can go a little farther, high priests can go the farthest. But like a Greek can't walk into the temple, that literally the punishment is death. So what they can't go any farther. So they have to go, hey, Philip, go tell Jesus we want to meet with him. Now, so people ask all the time, why Philip? No one really knows. They may think because his name was more Greek oriented, and so maybe they thought they would get a better audience with him. They don't really know. But it's amazing they go. We want to go. We want to talk to Jesus. Let us know. And you think about it. In this today's society, God has done miraculous things. Right? He's healed people. He's made lame, uh, lame people walk. He's blind can see. All sorts of crazy things He's been doing. No social media. So it means it's all being spread by word of mouth. And so the really the point is, it reads the Greeks. It reads the world, and the world now wants to know Jesus. So this is one of the prophecies that's fulfilled. And so when when Jesus literally says, "The hour." has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's the first time he's ever said that. He's always said, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. You think about when he was, the very first miracle in John, when he was at the wedding with his mother, his mother says, they're out of wine, do something, and Jesus goes, it's not my time. But he's finally saying it's my time, because why? Is The reason he came was for one purpose, to be crucified and to rise again from the dead. So he was born, which you guys are going to celebrate next week, we're all going to celebrate next week, the birth of God, which is God coming down on earth to be human, to live what? A perfect life. All for the point so that he can be crucified, that, that he can die and rise again so that we can be forgiven of our sins because we can't do it. And it's fascinating. So when this is happening, and just a quick sidelight, it's, Les had said, like, your church needs to grow during this meal time. He does. But what's interesting is if you ever read about Andrew in the Bible, 
every time Andrew's mentioned the Bible, it's pretty much because he's bringing someone to see Jesus. Just maybe a thing to put in the back of your head. We can all start doing that, right? Start bringing people to see Jesus. Bring people to your church. And so as he's doing this, this fabulous thing happens. So Jesus is telling his disciples. And what's funny is, if you know, Jesus never answers the question. When they said, hey, we want to go see Jesus, there is no answer. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I have no idea. It's not in the Bible. All he said was, it's my time. The hour has come. And what he tells the disciples next is fascinating. Because you think about it. I'm imagining sitting there as a disciple thinking, what is he talking about? Because he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I'm assuming at the time they're like, what is he talking about? I mean, like, what do you mean you're going to die? I mean, you're here to get rid of these idiot Romans and so that we can literally have the life we're, we're meant to have as, as, you know, God's people. Like, but the reality is, Jesus literally said, I'm going to die. And we all know the story, right? Jesus came to give up his life so that he could pay the price that we can't pay to his father. That's why Jesus came. And he's looking at the disciples and he's giving them a little insight. This is what you got to do for me. This is what we have to do for him. Now, I'm not saying any of us are going to have to literally die for him, but 10 of the 12 disciples never lived old age because they died preaching the word. I mean, died. I mean, like they were crucified, they were tortured, whatever, because of the word of God needed to be put out there and they weren't going to stop no matter the cost. Maybe a thing for us to think about as well. But so as this is going on, so like one of the reasons I'm planning a church literally is because I want the word of God to go out more. And the greatest way to reach people for Christ statistically is church plants. Church plants. Now, I think at our church, people would argue it's a bad time for a church plant. It's a bad time. Don't go now. I helped plant the church originally, and now I'm leaving to go plant another one. And people are thinking, what are you doing? Like, maybe we should wait a little longer. And I'm like, for what? What are we waiting for? Our comfort? Our peace? What are we waiting for? Like, even for you guys, like, beautiful people in this church, people who love Jesus, what are you waiting for? You don't need a pastor to do God's work. You don't need someone like me up here to do God's work. God has given you all the abilities for you to do it too, to go out there, reach people, to reach your friends. And so I'm planning a church in an area of the town where I have done a youth ministry for, I don't know, forever, but like 90% or 80% of my kids are non-believers. And so what I've noticed is that this part of their lives, they're all now that some of them are like young adults, they're married, they're starting to have kids, and they're all trying to figure out Jesus. And so they're all calling me and going, hey, start a Bible study, do this. And I go, I'll just plan a church. Let's just do that. It'd be a lot easier. And they're all, they're all like, I'll come check it out. I'll come check it out. And what I understand and what God is telling his disciples is, we have to give up our lives. Not literally. Not like you literally have to go die tomorrow. But like, we have to stop being selfish. And so as God transitions, or Jesus is transitioning, he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And then whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal. Now, that is a, just so I put this correctly, that is a Hebrew idiom. And it's not like you must hate your life. You don't have to hate your spouse. You don't have to be miserable. That's not what it's saying. But the reality is when this life is more important than that life, we have somehow flipped them around. And we no longer are thinking about God. We're thinking about ourselves. Right? And that's what's happening. And so he's telling his disciples, look, if you're going to follow me, 
I have to be first. This life isn't that important. The next life is what's important. And so whether you gain all the money you want, have all the jobs you want, whatever it is, like, that's great. It's not enough. So I have this lady in my life. Her name is Tina. She is crazy as all get out. I mean, literally, she's crazy. She's schizophrenic. She's multi-personality, all these things. She grew up in California. She's been part of a gang. She's killed people. She's like, she's, look, she's just nuts. She became a Christian about, I want to say, nine years ago, ten years ago. Still dealing with all her stuff. Still has tons of things going on in her life. And what's hilarious is she'll go off on these tangents and get nutty. But every time she gets crazy, she will call me and go, give me a verse. Give me a verse to read. And she goes, I want you to remind me of who Christ is in my life. Now, why she can't look it up herself, I have no idea. But she'll call me and say, give me a verse. And I think for us, how often is that true of us? Oftentimes, Christ is the last place we turn, not the first. We try to do everything else. We try to get it all together before we look at God and say, God, what are you telling me? What do you, what do you need to remind me of, of your goodness, of your greatness, of your love for me? What is it? So often in our lives, we get, we get bogged down with, I mean, let's be honest. I don't know if there's a bad word in your church or not, but the world sucks. Like, it's a terrible place. There's not many people you meet who don't have some horrific story that you want to go kill somebody. Because who would do that to a human? Right? I mean, this is the world we live in. There's only one answer. to Jesus. And here's the deal. You may think, well, no, it's a Republican Party. We just get the right Republican Party and we'll be fine. Or maybe you're the Democrats. We've we got to keep Biden in for four more years and he will set everything right. I have no idea. I just know you're crazy either way. It's not the answer. Right? People in power have not done incredibly great things in the history of mankind, if you look at it. People who love Jesus make huge differences. People who are willing to sacrifice their own lives for the message of Christ make huge differences. Huge differences that affect the world for eternity, not just for a day or two or four years or whatever, whatever their terms are. So I want to challenge you to think about something. In this whole message, in this whole fear, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid is going to happen if you step out for Christ? Here's what I'll tell you is really going to happen if you do. I love chaos. Don't take that wrong. I really do. I just love craziness. I spend my days pretty much all day just hanging out with people. I even get paid for it, which is crazy. I'll have one, two, three lunches. It depends on the day. Just hanging out with people all day long. And I want to hear their stories. I want to encourage them. I, I'm like, and their stories are sometimes are just crazy. And all this, because what it encourages me to realize is I'm often in a situation where I have no clue what to say or do. And I love it. Because if God doesn't show up, I'm screwed. And, I, and God always shows up. You find people who are excited about their faith. They're living their life on the line. They're not living in their high castles, calm, got everything set up, everything's perfect. Then, they, then they'll go out and reach people for just tell you. Think about how to live on the edge. Not, not literally, and I'm not saying be dumb. I mean, like, don't do, I mean, don't drive 150 miles an hour in the car, see what Jesus will do. That's crazy. But like when God says, hey, why don't you go talk to this person? Go do it. And here's the great thing. They may say something, and you have no idea what to say. So what? 
go home and research it, go back and tell them later. I do it all the time. People ask me questions all the time. I have no idea how to answer the question. I do my best. Sometimes it's a terrible answer. Sometimes it's a good answer. I'll go back and tell them again. But the reality is, God in this passage, the reason Jesus came to be born was to save his people. And God gave us that goal is to help him save his people. And knowing that, let's be honest, if you're truly reformed, you know that what you do doesn't, I mean, like if I screw up a conversation I'm having with somebody, it doesn't ruin anything. God can fix all that. But me being silent, what's the point of that? I am so tired of people telling me that they're bored with Christianity. They're going to, what's the word now, reconstruct their faith. So I'm like, what does that even mean? The, the Bible is pretty clear. Here's who God is. But he needs people, mouthpieces, to go out and say it, to go out and preach it, to go out and live it. When I planted the church, I told the church people two things. I said, people are going to see God through us. Number one, through us, period. Most people are not coming to church to see God. They're coming because somebody in that church they know I've seen, and they want to figure out what it is different about you than, than the world. And how that body functions together is huge. The ability to forgive and respect each other, the ability to work through issues, all that kind of stuff is huge. Because it's opposite of what the world is telling you to do. And so when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says, look it, you're going to have to give it out for it to produce. You're going to have to stop loving this life and love the life with me more for it to work. And the reality is, we don't do it. Why? Because most of the time, because we're afraid. We're afraid it's going to go south, something bad's going to happen. Who knows? There's a great story of a guy named, his last name is, I'm not going to say his name, right? Wanberg. He was, he was in a Russian prison. And he said he wasn't allowed to preach the gospel. And every time he preached the gospel, they would beat him. And so he said him and a bunch of those guys started a Bible study, and they're telling people about Jesus, and they get beat. He said it was a great relationship. He goes, we got to tell people about Jesus, the guards got to beat us, and everybody was happy. But when you think about it, why did that, why did that make them happy to get beat? Because the word of God going out was more important than their lives, was more important than their comfort, was more important than their whatever. We in America live in a way that our comfort is first and everything else is second. We want to have so much in our bank accounts. We want to make sure we have whatever. I mean, like whatever you think you need to, in order to do God's work, get it out of the way because you don't need it. I'm going to plant a church. I'm supposed to raise like $500,000. I have no idea where I'm getting that money. Don't even care. Like God will figure it out. But I want to go see, I want to live in a way that I am impressed with God all the time. I want to live in a way that I'm so excited because I don't know, have any idea what God's going to do next. So I, have, I said I had this youth group. I have two kids in this youth group. Both of them hate Jesus. They think it's great. They literally think I'm nuts. They like me, but they're like, it's such a bunch of garbage. What you see, you, well, this is what they said. What you teach us every week is just a bunch of garbage. I'm like, great. I go, so prove me wrong. So we have spent the last six weeks talking about how I am wrong and how they are right. And they're going to come to Christ soon because they can't do it. Even though they want to disprove it because they don't want to believe it, they can't do it. And so I'm just sitting there watching God 
do crazy things in their lives. That have nothing to do with me. I just happen to be available to them, so they'll call me. They'll talk to me. They'll hang out because they like me. That can be all of us. So I'm going to leave you with this challenge. I don't know what your number in this church is. 50 or, 50 or something like that, if, you're, if everyone shows up. What have you made your goal that by the time this new guy shows up, wherever the heck he is, wherever, whatever he's doing, whatever God's doing in his life right now to make him ready, why don't you have 75? It's easily possible. And it wouldn't be that hard. If there's 50 of you, it just means half of you have to go ask a friend to come to church. Now, here's the deal. I'm not going to call you out. But if you can't literally tell me you don't have any friends, let's have a whole different conversation, right? We all know people. You all know, you've, I mean, especially if you've lived in Fremont a long time, there's 27 some thousand people in Fremont, is that right? Is that right? I looked at a sign going in, that's why I'm saying it. Not that impressive. Green sign, 27. But when you think about it, there's a world of people out there, 27,000 people. How many of them are churched? I was even thinking about it as I'm driving around there before I came in. How many are churched? How many of the 27,000 go to a church that teaches them that Jesus Christ is the only way to happen? I mean, is it 1,000? 3,000? It's just benefit. Let's say it's 15,000, which we all know is wrong. There's still 17,000 people or whatever out there who don't have any idea. Go do it. And this church will blow up. Because they're going to start seeing God do things. That's crazy. My motto for my church literally is, let's do something so big that only God can accomplish it. I told the church if in two years we are not seeing people come to Christ on regularly, we're going to shut the doors because there's no point in having another church that's just going to feed sheep who don't want to do any work. I mean, I think you guys have a great church here in Fremont. It's a beautiful building. You guys seem like lovely people every time I meet you. What's the issue? The issue is some of you, you're waiting for this guy to show up. Then you'll do the work. You don't need this guy. He'll be helpful, but you don't need him to do the work. You need to do the work. With that challenge, I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for these guys. We thank you so much for their love for you and the fact that this church has been through ups and downs and it's doing, it, these people love you and, and love each other. And I just pray that you really will just make this church boom, make, make them reach people that they never thought they could reach. And I pray that they will have stories they don't even know how to tell because you have done such miraculous things. And, and give them the courage and the wisdom and the, and the love for you and the love for each other to take a risk. And what's the worst that can happen? Someone tells them no. But the greatest thing that could happen is they go to they go to heaven with another brother or sister who loves and adores you, Lord. In your name, Amen. Does he play first? Do I do communion first, or he play first? All right. All right. The Lord's Supper, literally in my church, is the favorite part of my service because it's the greatest reminder of what it is we're talking about. It's the fact that you realize in your life you're not worthy of what you're getting. You have done nothing to get it. Christ died on a cross. This fix our problem. He's paid a cost we could never pay, right? And, that, and that's the gospel. That's the that is where all this comes from. And so as you think about it, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples.